Hey everyone and welcome to the Hack My Homestead podcast. This is Sean Mills and today is the 4th of July 2023. Today we're going to go back to basics a little bit and talk about the basics of solar panels. And so I get a lot of questions about, hey, what is this VMP number on the back of the panel? What are all these numbers on this label? So I thought it'd be good to just cover it on the podcast. So first, let's talk about how solar panels work. So what a solar panel does is it takes uh, light energy from the sun and through what's called the photovoltaic effect, it creates a current. And so if you can imagine the individual um, atoms of silicon within a solar panel and there's like a pocket and then there's an atom in that pocket, what happens when the photon strikes the actual solar cell is that the atom falls out of that pocket and the pocket moves across what's called the PN junction and the now uh, charged electron actually creates a current and it moves out of the cell through the junction box in the solar panel. It goes out through the circuit, does whatever work you've assigned it to, whether that's charging batteries or uh, operating a light or whatever the case may be. And then as it completes the circuit and comes back around to the cell, this time on the other side of that PN junction, those two things match back up. And that's what actually creates the circle uh, that we call a circuit. So on any electrical circuit, we're either open, which means there's nowhere for the electricity to go, or we're closed. So that would be switch on. And now that the circuit is closed and we have the loop, the charge can actually run through the whole circuit. Okay, so in uh, general terms, that's how it works. The reason why when a solar panel gets hotter, it actually produces less electricity is because those those uh, atoms are already kind of excited and it takes more of the photons striking the actual cell to break one of them free. Okay, so let's talk about the actual numbers on the back of the solar panel. So typically you'll have what's called STC or the standard test conditions. And this is essentially just what happens when the standardized testing is run on the solar panel, what type of light is going to be on it, what the ambient temperature is, etc. Okay, so it doesn't really matter, but that's what they're talking about when they give you the STC uh, information. The next thing you're going to see on a lot of these solar panels is the PMAX. And so PMAX, that is the maximum rated power of the solar panel itself. So under those STC, those standard test conditions, this is what the actual panel has produced. And this number should be, you know, pretty close to what the the rating, if you're looking for a 150 watt solar panel, then the STC should result in a PMAX of 150 watts. One of the other numbers that you'll see a lot is IMP, okay? And so your IMP is your current at maximum power or at Pmax. And so again, current is kind of like the pressure uh, of the electricity, right? How pressurized it is. And the voltage is like the flow of the electricity or like the gallons per minute if you're thinking about it from a standpoint of um, like water. And so You've got the current at maximum power and you've got the voltage at maximum power. And the voltage at maximum power is VMP. And so a 300 watt panel 
what you're looking for is the VMP and the IMP is going to give you the actual um, the voltage and the current at that 300 watts. Okay, so when it's producing 300 watts, those are the numbers that, that the panel is actually producing. Another one of the numbers that's kind of important, uh, particularly for me when I'm doing designs for people, is ISC. And so ISC stands for short current circuit. And that's the current in amps that a panel puts out uh, under the standard test conditions when there's no voltage. Okay, so when there's no work actually being done, you're just shorting the ends. What is that uh, current? And the reason why that's important is because when I'm designing a system and I want to make sure that I'm accounting for the maximum currents in a specific fuse or a string of panels uh, or a charge controller can handle, I use that ISC number to make sure that in the worst possible case scenario, I'm underneath whatever the maximum, you know, whatever the, or rather the minimum uh, limiting factor is. So I might have an MPPT charge controller that can take 60 amps on the input, but I might be running that string through a 15 amp breaker in my combiner box. And so in that scenario, the 15 amps would be the limiting factor. And I would use the ISC of the individual panels to make sure I'm designing a system that's staying under that amount. So then the next one you're going to see is open circuit voltage. And so this is uh, the maximum voltage when there's no load at all. Okay. So if you're, if you have a multimeter, you can actually test the VOC uh, just by putting your leads into either end of the individual panel or the string. And so ISC and VOC are very important, uh, particularly if you're buying a used panel and you want to be able to test that. Um, as long as your multimeter can take whatever the amperage is on the actual unit, you can short it and um, get that reading. Um, or you can switch it over to voltage. You can actually get the DC voltage reading off of that. So those are important things if you're buying a used panel or if you're trying to troubleshoot an array that has a problem, you can actually go and test the individual panels when they're not hooked up to your system and ISC and VOC are the numbers you're looking for. You want your panel to read something, <coughs> excuse me, something relatively close to those ISC and VOC numbers. And so in a design standpoint, VOC is what I use to make sure that my voltage does not exceed the maximum that I can put on the system. So again, I have to look at whatever that minimum requirement is. That minimum requirement uh, might be the string itself, like how much voltage can actually go through the, um, uh, you know, the panels as it's going through the junction box. It might be the charge controller. It might be the inverter. If I've got an all-in-one machine and I'm wiring those panels up directly to the actual uh, inverter. So again, whatever that minimum number is, that's the number that I've got to keep in mind when I'm designing the system. So let's say I've got nine solar panels and those solar panels have a uh, VOC of 20 and an IMP of five. Okay. So they're going to be, you know, something about a hundred watt panel. Um, what I'm, what I will do there is I'll say, okay, I can take all nine of those panels and wire them together in series, which makes my voltage additive. Okay. So nine panels, 
I've got 20 uh, volts each. That'd be 180 volts in that system at five amps, right? Now, if I were to wire them the other way, if I were going to wire them in parallel, then my uh, amperage is additive. And in that scenario, I would have a 20 volt um, output, but I would multiply nine times my five amps and 45 amps would be what I was what I would be designing around. And then you can do some other things. So with those same nine panels, I could wire three of them in series, three more in series, three more in series, right? So I have three different sets of panels. Each of those uh, sets of panels or strings would now have 60 volts at five amps. And then I could combine those in a combiner box so that my overall output is now 60 volts at 15 amps. So you see, you can kind of play around with that. You could do one array of five panels and a separate array of four panels and not combine them. Just run all of the cabling in if your MPPT charge controller had two uh, inputs. So there's a lot of options there, uh, but those are the statistics that you want to pull off the back of that panel that help you actually design the system so that it works together. Uh, the other thing that you'll see is the temperature coefficient. And so I mentioned earlier that your uh, temperature has an inverse relationship to the voltage. So the lower the temperature, the higher the voltage of the system. And so again, when you're going to be putting one of these systems together, you have to consider the worst case scenario. So after I've decided, okay, this is what my array is going to look like. Let's say I've got 180 volts at five amps in this system. Uh, now I have to consider that temperature coefficient. I have to look at the coldest temperature that might be reached by those panels. Okay. And so the, let's say that I've got a temperature coefficient of half a percent. Okay. That means that for every uh, one degree Celsius below 25 degrees Celsius, my voltage goes up by half a percent. Okay. And so I, if, if in that area, um, the, the lowest temperature would be five degrees Celsius, then that would be 20 degrees. I would multiply that times my half a percentage and then multiply that times my voltage to come up with the maximum uh, voltage increase due to the cold temperature that I might have. And it works the other way too. Uh, the hotter that they get, the less they produce. But from a design characteristic standpoint, you want to make sure that you're not blowing out things downstream of the panels. And so you want to make sure that you're keeping your voltage in the right range. And so that's another, once I've kind of designed the whole array and I got all the components set up, I will run that temperature coefficient check to make sure that I'm not screwing myself over. And on a cold day, I get an over voltage problem. Now I will say there are a lot of different um, you know, charge controllers and all-in-one devices that actually have over voltage uh, protection. If the voltage is too high, they'll just cut off. And so I'll have that conversation. If we're close, I'll have the conversation with my customer and say, hey, we're close enough to this cutoff to where if you have a really cold day and the sun strikes it just right as it's coming over the treetops in the morning after a very cold night, you might end up with an over voltage situation. And all that's going to happen is that your charge controller is going to say, hey, we've got an overvolted situation. As those panels heat up because the sun is hitting them, then that voltage will drop. And then once it's below 
the level that the charge controller can take, charge controller kicks on just like normal. One of the things to remember about that temperature coefficient is not referring to the ambient temperatures. Not has nothing to do with how cold it is outside. It has to do with the temperature of the cell within the solar panel. And so 25 degrees Celsius may be like, okay, that's, you know, you're not talking about a crazy number, but you know, those, if you've ever touched the solar panel when it's been sitting uh, in the sun all day, those things get really, really hot. And so um, just something to keep in mind, if you're designing a system that's going to be in full sun all day, you know, you're going to have some voltage drop off over the course of the day, just because the panel is going to get hotter. So now we know what the back of the panel numbers mean, uh, how to kind of use them to design a system or to check a system against the other components that are in there. <coughs> Excuse me. Now let's talk about um, what do we do after the photons have hit the solar panels and we're creating energy? Like what do we do at that point? We've got a couple options. So on a grid-tied system, what your inverters will do is they will use that power locally as much as you have, you know, as much as you need, and it will take whatever the rest is and it will put that back on the grid. Okay. That's one of the functions of the actual inverter. What it will do is it will increase the voltage ever slow, uh, so slightly above the voltage that your uh, grid is so that the current flows in that direction. Okay. It creates that imbalance so that the extra current flows out and into the grid. There might be a situation where you're generating power, but not enough to actually power everything at the house. And so in that scenario, what happens is that the uh, grid power flows in because the, uh, the imbalance is the other direction. And then the, um, uh, you know, your, your power panel actually combines all that and then distributes it out into the house. If you're on an off-grid system, what happens is that that power comes in to a charge controller or an all-in-one device and it charges your batteries. Now, if it's an all-in-one device, you can actually do some conversion right there inside that device. And so you can have DC coming in from the panels and AC going out to the house, as well as the additional DC going into the batteries or in the event that you're uh, drawing more than you're producing, you could have DC coming in from the from the solar panels, DC coming in from the batteries, and then AC going out into the house. And so those are the kind of the different options that you would have. And depending on the type of system that you're gonna put in, those are, you know, your inverter is gonna know based on how you have it uh, programmed uh, to do what you want. Now, there's also a hybrid system or behind the grid system. So a hybrid system does everything that an off-grid system does, but it's also attached to the grid. And in the event that you have extra production and your batteries are topped off, it will put power back on the grid or bring it in if the inverse is true. And you can program those guys to say, top my batteries off and never use battery power unless the grid power is down. And then a behind the grid system does all of that stuff, except it doesn't export, okay? And so on a behind the grid system, what you wanna be doing is you actually wanna be, you wanna size the system to use almost all of the uh, production, or rather, the, so that the production is almost everything that you need, but not all of what you need. And you kind of have to feather that in a little bit because you might tell the system, hey, keep my batteries at 100%, and in that scenario, overnight, you're going to be running 100% off of grid power. 
Okay. Now, again, those behind the meter systems never put power back onto the grid. They just use the grid kind of as an extra battery. And so you can program that to never use battery power unless the grid is off. Um, but overnight, okay, we, we're all on grid power. And then now tomorrow morning when the sun comes up, if I'm generating more than I can use locally, there's nowhere for it to go. And so the inverter actually changes the waveform and basically wastes the excess production. And so I tell people that are going to do a behind the grid or a, or a grid interactive system, hey, use some battery overnight. Don't use all of it, but maybe, you know, maybe take 25% of the available battery power out so that tomorrow morning you've got somewhere for that excess energy to go um, so that you're not wasting your production. And you can actually put some really nice... Um, what do you call them? Um, well, I'm drawing a blank here. You could put some really, oh, monitoring software. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. <coughs> Excuse me. You can put some really nice monitoring software on your system that will actually show you on a graph, hey, at nine o'clock, we had more generation that we could have uh, utilized, but there wasn't anywhere for it to go. So it got clipped. And so uh, if you if you put one of those systems in, I like the solar assistant. Uh, if you put one of those systems in and really monitor it, then it becomes very easy for you to kind of say, oh, OK, now that I know exactly what I'm doing here, um, maybe I need to go 50 percent battery. And then now we're having a conversation with ourselves of, OK, well, what happens if it's four in the morning? I've used 50 percent of my battery bank. And we get a thunderstorm and the power goes out. Oh, now I only have 50% power. But guess what? If you're on a grid interactive system, your solar panels are still going to work tomorrow morning. So, again, it, there's a whole lot of thought process that goes into that. A whole lot of uh, kind of pre-planning and analysis and what if. Um, and, and then your own risk tolerance comes into play. So, tell you what, we're going to wrap it up there. I'm going to have a, a series that's going to go out this week on some of the basics. I've also just published an ebook. Uh, so if you guys want to go to any of the social media stuff, Instagram, YouTube, um, Facebook, uh, I will have links to the ebook there. Um, I'm selling it for $14.95 and it's literally everything you need to know to evaluate your property and determine how much solar potential your property has. So if you just want to kind of, kind of get a helping hand for something that people typically pay me a couple hundred dollars to come out and do, um, this ebook literally gives you all of the information that you need to do that evaluation and uh, including links to some websites that will help you kind of plug in the data that you've arrived at after you've done that analysis to project how much solar you, you would need to put on your roof or on a ground mount system based on your specific area, your specific weather patterns. Uh, if you're doing a roof mount, the actual angle and azimuth of your roof, all of that information. So that being said, if you guys have any questions or anything you'd like me to cover on the podcast, go ahead and email me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com. And I'll get that into the show. I'll answer your questions. I appreciate all feedback. Um, sending out the uh, June newsletter today. Uh, we are in the process of moving back to Tennessee. So 
I'm a little bit behind schedule on some stuff, but the June newsletter goes out today. If you're not on the newsletter list, you can go to the website, go to the contact page, and then you can actually sign up to receive that newsletter. It's free. I typically give a little bit of kind of knowledge-based stuff in there. I talk about the state of the industry. I talk about pricing for all components that would go into a system. I typically give you an example of a kind of plug and play system with all the components and uh, the pricing and even take that all the way down to price per watt. Uh, and then I talk about anything that's upcoming as well. So send me an email if you're interested in signing up for the uh, free newsletter that goes out monthly. I don't send anything out by email other than that. Uh, there was an, an early bird uh, kind of launch special on the Kickstarter and you had to have been in the uh, newsletter to even get access to that. <coughs> Excuse me. As you can see, I'm still dealing with the tail end of this little sinus issue. Uh, so I apologize for the coughing. But the other thing I wanted to mention is the Kickstarter is still active. It's going to go through July 14th. So we have 10 more days and uh, we are fully funded. So we're working on stretch goals now. Uh, we've already hit our... Uh, first stretch goal where we're going to do a uh, ram pump demonstration and all the calculations around ram pumps. Uh, we have some other stretch goals set up, including Paul Wheaton from permies.com has pledged to provide access to his ponds video, which is a couple hour long uh, pond installation workshop. Uh, great information there. They talk about kind of how much clay you need in your soil to just use your soil uh, to actually uh, seal the pond rather than actually having to bring in bentonite clay or and they even talks about some other ways that you can seal a pond if you don't have enough clay content in your soil tons of value in that uh, if we hit thirteen thousand dollars on our funding then everyone that's backed the system at at least seventy dollars gets access to that pond's uh, video which is part of uh, paul's uh, world domination uh, gardening series and so you get that, you get access to Nicole Sauce's um, uh, smart planning webinar, as well as her uh, how to make your garden uh, work in the first year webinar. So you get access to both of those for free. Assuming we hit our stretch goal, you're going to get access to the Paul Wheaton Pond video for free, plus all of the other stuff. At this point, there's probably between four and five hundred dollars worth of value at the seventy dollar level. So just go to um, kickstarter.com and search for solar water pumping and you can find that uh, and all of you guys that have already backed the, the program and got us over our funding goal so that we know that's going to happen I really appreciate it and uh, really looking forward to we close on the 14th we start filming on the 15th we already have some vendors set up we already have a few pumps uh, and some gauges and things like that and by the 15th we'll actually have our first test stand built so again, super, super excited about that and thank all you guys uh, that have backed us so far. With that, I'll go ahead and wrap it up for today and we'll talk to you next time.